I'll be reading from Genesis 37 on page 41 of the Church Bible. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age and made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are, grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But when he saw them in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to, and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of his cistern 
and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Jeff, thank you so much. So you keep page 41 open, and uh, there's a little outline as well if you want to make notes uh, just on the service sheet. Let me pray uh, before we get into this great story. Father, we sang earlier that your word is like food for famished people. Uh, it frees us. Uh, it's rich for the needy soul. And, and we come before you today needy. Uh, Lord, maybe uh, we didn't think that as we came into the building. Perhaps we did think that when we came into the building. But we are all needy people here who need to hear and be fed this afternoon. So I pray that you'll be with me, Lord, as I uh, open up this passage and preach you be with all of us, that you'll be stirring our hearts, our affections, so that we might understand your ways more and might see your Son more clearly in all his glory and all his beauty. Show us Christ, we pray. Amen. Those of you who were at Trinity probably about 18 months ago, I think, uh, we had an online event when everything was online, and it was with a guy called Jeremy Marshall. Um, he was in the midst of uh, suffering with, with cancer. Uh, he'd been going through treatment for that, and, and he spoke to us about the hope that he had in Jesus, to, despite all the trials, sufferings that he was going on. It was a really, really moving event. Uh, it's still on the YouTube channel if you want to, to check that out. Jeremy Marshall was um, still alive, uh, but still suffering, struggling uh, with his battle with cancer. And, and a few days ago, publicly, he, he wrote these words. He said, I've been through some awful times these last few months. I've faced some tough challenges, very tough challenges. I felt physically rubbish for the last few weeks. Uh, this was due to inflammation of the lungs, which is now being treated. I have an operation on my throat next week. But in this awful mess, I found so many opportunities to tell others about how amazing the Lord Jesus is. You may be in similar suffering. If we were firing on all cylinders, we would not have one one thousandth of the incredible chances to praise him and tell others of what a wonderful God we have. The path of suffering is so hard that the Lord can use our sufferings for his glory and may he do so. And every step we walk, he walks with us. Friends, let us remember this, how truly happy are they whose hopes rely on Israel's God. He alone can help us and friends, he has and he will Help us. Those are the words of, of Jeremy Marshall just uh, a few days ago. How can he say that? 
How can he say those words, all that he's been going through over the last number of years? Is it a really supportive family? Maybe. Is it a church community that's kind of got round him and helped? Yeah, maybe. But certainly undergirding all of that is a, is a robust commitment to God's providence. I mentioned that word a few minutes ago, and I think just because it's such a big word for this series that we're going through, it's worth just defining it. So up on the screen there, uh, this is from something called the Heidelberg Catechism. I mentioned it before. Um, it's in the 1500s. A group of Christians came together to define various terms to, to kind of encourage us. And this is what they said. What do you understand by the providence? That's our key word of God. Providence, then, is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hands, heaven and earth, all create uh, creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, and all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I know that's a little bit long, but it's helpful to just define it. Like, nothing is left to, to kind of chance or just, oh, it just happens. But actually, God oversees. He, he has the whole world in his hands. Things come to us with his fatherly care and hands. And like Jeremy Marshall, you, you and I, well, we need a, a healthy understanding of the providence of God. And we ideally, we need that before suffering hits, okay? Before trials hit in our life. A friend of mine put it like this. That it's a bit like um, a parachute, okay? I don't know if there's some crazy people here who would jump out of a plane. Um, but if you did that, you, you want to understand how the parachute works before you jump out, right? You, you don't want to be getting the instruction manual out. And which cord was it again that I need to pull as you're coming to 200 miles an hour hurtling towards it? You, you want to have read the instructions, uh, got, got the parachute kind of figured out a little bit more before you're hurtling towards the ground. And that's what it's like with God's providence. We, we want to understand this and, and think about it as much as we can before those trials and sufferings come to us. Because they do, right? They do come to us in different ways. And grasping God's providence, although that will massively help, will be a great comfort. It doesn't mean it will be easy, but it will be a great comfort and help to us. And so this Joseph story, as I said, over the next seven weeks is, is really one big story of God's providence. But it is more than that. It's also about God's covenant promises. And so I use the, the parachute kind of metaphor there. We, we need to, if we sort of parachuted into this story in the book of Genesis, but if we if you parachute up, you can't do that. But imagine that we could sort of go big, the big picture. These couple of verses in Genesis really help us to see what's gone on before. So Genesis, right at the beginning, Adam and Eve, everything was good, very good in the garden. Yet sin entered the world and, and ruined everything. Yet God has given a promise to his people. And so he says to the serpent in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's Eve, and between your offspring, or seed, and her offspring, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. 
It's a huge promise that, that humanity are oh, so messed up. Everything has gone wrong. Yet, yet God has said, look, there, there will be a descendant of Eve who will come and who will reverse the curse and destroy, crush Satan one day. That's a pretty great promise to grip onto at the beginning of Genesis. But another one comes in, in chapter 12. And maybe if you've been in small groups as we've looked at the Bible overview, you'll see that God said to Abraham in chapter 12, this promise, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now that was a promise again that God will bring a great nation out of this small sort of insignificant family at this point in Genesis. And he will bless that family and by extension, bless for the world through that. And God, through providence, will use Joseph in our story to start to turn back the effects of the fall of sin in this world and to escalate the promises made to, well, to Abraham in chapter 12. And so really the Joseph story, if we want a sort of headline over the next few weeks, highlights how God's providence accomplishes God's promises, okay? How God's providence accomplishes his promises, even when all the odds seem stacked against him. And my prayer is really that this series will, will, will deepen our trust in God's goodness as we locate our story within God's great salvation big story. I think I've just about got away with two introductions there, one for when everyone else is in and then another one here. But we will get into the story now because that's such a great story uh, in chapter 37. And just a couple of things just to, to guide us through it. First of all, Jacob's dysfunctional family. We know it, don't we, as the Joseph story. I've said that a number of times. But it's actually really the story of Jacob's family. And of course, as we start a story, we need some introductions. And so the spotlight, first of all, swings on Joseph. It's worth knowing that in, in the Bible, when you're introduced to a character, first impressions, kind of the first entrance onto the stage, is always really important. What are they going to do? What are they going to be like? And verse 2, we see, page 41, if, if you've lost it, second part of verse 2, Joseph, a young man of 17, just passed his driving test, no, no, he hasn't, uh, was tending his flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Joseph then will be, as the story progresses, will be a godly man, noble man. But here, well, he comes across as, as cocky, <laughs> thoughtless, telltale younger brother. And trust me, I, I, I know that role. I fulfilled that role uh, growing up. We might not think there's much in it, but, but, but here actually, he runs to daddy, first of all, with a bad report. And the kind of original Hebrew sort of language that this was written in, a bad report has connotations of a false or malicious report. He's exaggerating things to get his brothers in trouble. I'm sure no one here has ever, ever done anything like that. So it's not a great start. We're thinking, Joseph, he's a legend, he, he's the hero. Well, we'll see. We'll see. It's not a great start. But the cocky teenager is not the only one who's got issues. Because we're in verse 3, we're introduced to Jacob. 
Jacob, sometimes called Israel, Jacob, Israel, kind of interchangeable throughout the story. And daddy, Jacob here, he, well, he's got a few issues of his own. He's not exactly a, a fine example of a family man, as uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber famously put it. What, what issues has he got going on? Well, well, a couple of things. First of all, we're told in verse 2 about not his wife, but his wives. If you know the rest of Genesis, uh, you'll know that uh, he had two wives, Rachel and Leah. But then also we're, we're told that he had children with two other women, Bilhah and Zilpah, the, the servants of Rachel and Leah. So in all, there's four, at least, <laughs> four wives or, or kind of partners who have fathered Jacob's children. I guess some people will hear this and go, ah, isn't this kind of, uh, you know, proof that, that the Bible is okay with polygamy, with multiple partners? No. <laughs> no, God's blueprint earlier in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, is for marriage to be between one man and one woman. And actually here, Jacob is he's acting like the cultures around him. He's just doing what everyone else is doing. Multiple wives, sure, yeah, why not? And it helps to explain the train wreck of a situation that his family is in, as we'll see. Rather than being a model of, oh yeah, have as many wives as you want, that's fine. The Bible's cool with that. No, this is a, well, a case study in what goes wrong when you go apart and away from God's good plan and design. It's not exactly the only issue he's got going on. Verse 3, there's an issue of favoritism. Look at verse 3. We're told now Israel, it's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of the other brothers, of the other sons, sorry, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. So it's funny, isn't it? Joseph is the, the second youngest, but he's being treated like he's the firstborn or, or the only son in the way that daddy is treating him. And he shows that by giving him this ornate robe. Sorry to, to burst your bubble here, but we're not actually told that it's a technicolored dream coat. <gasps> you know, is that okay? Yes, okay. Well, it says here, an ornate robe. It's okay. It doesn't really change the story massively for us as we see that. But an ornate robe here is a symbol of royalty. The only other time that this phrase is used in the Bible is in the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Samuel 13, where it describes a royal garment. So maybe, maybe there's a hint here, perhaps, that, uh, of where Joseph is going to Egypt, that he will end up in a position of power and authority, royal power and authority. At the very least, it's very provocative, isn't it, this day? His dad chooses one son and says, look, here, you have the ornate robe. And again, if you know anything about this wider book of Genesis, you'll know that this isn't the first time that favoritism has been an issue in this family. Jacob's own dad preferred Esau, his brother, while his mum sided with him. And that was a train wreck as well. And so this dysfunctional family here in Genesis, the same thing is playing out again here in this next generation. But the story isn't just of Jacob and Joseph, but it's a story of Jacob and his sons. And so we're introduced to Joseph's brothers as well. There's 12 of them in all. Joseph uh, is a telltale. We've seen that a little bit so far. Jacob has given a, a masterclass in bad parenting. 
And verse 4, because of that, we're told they hated Joseph. The brothers hated Joseph. They, they couldn't even say a nice thing. They couldn't, you know, as they came down to the kitchen in the morning, couldn't even say good morning. They hated him. So at this point in the story, things are, things are, it seems, kind of reaching boiling point in this dysfunctional family. And the following verses make sure things actually bubble over. So verse 5, do you see there? Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. Just think about it for a moment. Uh, we, he knew, didn't he? Joseph knew, 17, switched on enough to know that his brothers hated him. Uh, that he's already been given this robe. And there's no sense as he receives this dream that sort of he goes to his brothers and says, look, this is a bit orcs, but I did have this dream. Do you mind if I kind of share some of the details? There's no sense of, oh, let, maybe I'll just keep this to myself and wait for the invitation to kind of share it. No, he, he blurts out that he's had a dream that not only is he daddy's favorite, but he seems to be God's favorite as well <laughs> in this dream. Talk about rubbing salt in the wounds. Then verse 9, then he had another dream, and he told his brothers, listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Again, no invitation, and we know that this is incredibly brash and insensitive of Joseph, because even his dad rebukes his favorite son. I want to simply ask to see at this point that this... <laughs> This is a deeply dysfunctional family, a toxic family, you could say. Yet it is a family that God will choose to form the foundation for the nation of Israel. The, the nation who, who God will bless and through whom a blessing will fall on the nations as well. But God needs to be at work, doesn't he, in this family to transform these individuals. It's a family desperately in need of, of God's help. Just to pause here at the moment, I've just been looking at this week, I think this is an encouragement, isn't it? That God has and can be at work in messy and broken families. You don't have to have come from the sort of perfect nuclear family of, of 2.4 children driving the Volvo, growing up in Surrey with a nice sort of university degree. God can use you. And so is there hope for this dysfunctional family. There's hope for any of us. That even though there's perhaps been in our family kind of family pain and sin and brokenness, God can use those things and can transform us and even families as well. The second thing we move on to is the brothers' murderous intentions. I pick up the story then with the brothers 50 miles away in a place called Shechem. We're not told why Joseph isn't with them. They're all gone out and working hard in the field. Joseph, perhaps he's swanning around at home, kind of, Got the robe on, maybe looking, sort of doing a few spins in the mirror with the robe just to kind of, uh, you know, make sure it doesn't get muddy in the fields and all of that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, his dad wants, uh, wants Joseph to check in on the brothers. I was, I was reading this, I was thinking, 
Again, not great parenting, is it? You know that they hate him. They're 50 miles away. And uh, yeah, sends him into a random place uh, to, to see how that goes. But he sets off, and it's quite hard to find his brothers. There's no kind of, um, they, you know, the sort of share location app on your phone. The, the brothers don't have that on. And so Joseph searches around. He's trying to find them. He has to ask for direction. And he gets there in the end, but not before we see in verse 18 that they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. You see the escalation? Previously, they did hate him. Now they want to kill him. And we do ask, don't we, what kind of family is this in Genesis? Well, perhaps it's the kind of family that back in chapter 4 saw one brother kill another brother, Cain and Abel. Do you know that story? And verse 19 and 20, we see them saying, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. These aren't going to, you know, every teenager shouted, I want to kill you at one stage or whatever, maybe to a parent or something like that. No, this is real. They've got a plan. It's bloodthirsty. And they don't want to bow down to him. Those dreams, they, they don't want to worship this guy. Yeah, at this point, again, maybe like your family, the, the two older brothers, a couple of them step in, step up. It's their moment to speak to the rest of the, the, the siblings. And first of all, it's Reuben. He's the oldest. Uh, he comes over a little bit better, okay, at this point in the story. And uh, maybe he's kind of, maybe he wanted the robe. He's the firstborn. And he thinks, maybe if I step in and, and do something great here, Daddy will kind of, you know, honor me in that way. Maybe there's another robe kicking around that I could, I could have. So he steps in, and it's, it's not much better, is it? But, but it, instead of being killed, he's thrown. Joseph, they throw him into a cistern. That would have been a kind of a bottle-shaped hole in the ground. It's an excellent dungeon that they would have used to throw him into. And then did you see when Jeff was reading the, the chilling detail in verse 25? What do they do? They sit down for dinner, the brothers. They get the cool bag out, and uh, the pitta, and the hummus, and the falafels, and, the, and they eat it. And maybe the, the smell of that drifts and wafts down to that little sort of semi-dungeon that Joseph is, is in. It's callous, isn't it? Their own brother down there. It's not a prank. This is serious. But then Judah... One of the other brothers steps in. He's going to be a really key character, actually, in this story. We're going to see a lot about him. But he's midway through a pit of bread and a falafel, and then he, he smells an opportunity. He smells a business opportunity, verse 26. He says to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's a brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. A generous reading of this is to say that he, he wants to save Joseph's life. But selling his own brother here into slavery, that is still the crime of the century. In the, in the kind of ancient Near Eastern culture of that time, that was a capital offense to sell someone into slavery like this. So it's not kind of, oh, Judah's done really well here. 
This is still horrible. You think your family, again, is, is messed up. This just seems to take it to a whole other level, right? Selling your own brother into slavery. And so verse 28 literally reads, in the original language, they pulled Joseph out, they, they sold him, the Ishmaelites took him. It's very brief, punchy, as we're told that. And at this point, it's worth saying that the, the brothers, they fully expected never to see him again as he went off into the distance. But the job's not quite finished. It's not quite complete, is it? They need to do some explaining as they head back to the house and, and see their dad. They need to do a cover-up job. Maybe on the way back, there's a sort of bit of chat. You know, what's it going to be? That's a stupid idea. Oh, that's quite good, you know. And, the, and they come up with this plan in verse 31. They got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. They can't even say Joseph, your son's robe. Again, just last time I'll say this, if you know Genesis and the kind of story surrounding this, you'll perhaps be able to spot the irony here. Okay, only 10 chapters earlier, back in chapter 27, Jacob deceived his own dad, Isaac. Do you remember he, he pretended to be his hairy brother, Esau? If you think, what on earth are you talking about, Nathan? Have a read back at chapter 27 tonight. And, and he deceived his own dad, do you remember? He was blind in his old age to get the blessing. And here, Jacob, whose name literally means deceiver, is deceived. Again. We see what's going on there with the generations, the same thing happening. And Jacob is destroyed. It's as if he's, only, he's lost his only son, the way he mourns this situation. And here ends the opening scene of Genesis chapter 37, the story. And all does seem thoroughly depressing, doesn't it? Let's be honest. At the end of this chapter, Joseph's dreams, well, they seem really, really distant. Uh, desperately unlikely to be accomplished. And this family seems more likely to appear on an episode of Jeremy Kyle than it does to be the family that God will use to fulfill his promises. Yet there are signs, signs at this stage even, that God is working behind the scenes in this family and this story. It's our last point we're going to look at. See, God is not mentioned by name in this chapter. I don't know if you noticed that. But we do see his fingerprint, that he is sovereignly in control over all of this. Where? Well, first of all, in the fact that, that Joseph has been given these dreams by God. Yeah, sure, he doesn't handle them very well, the way that he shares them with his brothers. But they are nonetheless given to him by God. And they will form, if you like, a, a grid by which we can understand Genesis 37 to 50 in this story. Showing God's perfect plan that, that all Joseph has gone through and will go through, he can grip onto this promise, these dreams, even in the darkest moments. See, Joseph will be God's key man by which the nations will be blessed. This will be the family, even this family, <laughs> this dysfunctional family that, that through whom the offspring will come. Do you remember that verse earlier? The offspring will come who will crush Satan and reverse the curse. 
Yet at this point, this violent and divided family, reminiscent of Cain and Abel, at this point, the offspring and the offspring's survival is deeply threatened, right? At this point in the story. Joseph's life is within a hair's breadth of the end. But yet God providentially intervenes. He, he kind of steers the course of history, detail by detail, so that he will save many lives, so that he will bring salvation to his people. And we see God's fingerprints through the, the coincidences in this chapter. Let me just bring out a few of them. Verse 15. Verse 15. Did you notice? The man just happened to find Joseph in the field. Okay? He just happened to bump into him and to point him in the right direction. Imagine if he had pointed him in the other direction. <laughs> Little coincidence. Or, or Reuben in verse 21 just happened to intervene rather than let his brother be killed. His brothers were, were bloodthirsty. Yet Reuben just happens to intervene. Or verse 25, they, they just happened to have their lunch spot on the route that took Joseph all the way down to Egypt, where he will end up. Or verse 32, Jacob just happened to successfully be deceived. If he wasn't, he might have gone out, chased after him. Verse 36, Joseph just happened to be sold to Potiphar's family, that little detail in that last verse. Not a random family in Egypt, but Potiphar's family, precisely, providentially, we can say, where God wanted him. God is in control of the details, working out his, his perfect plan in all these details, so that, well, that many lives might be saved. As I said earlier, in the Joseph story, we see in miniature the Jesus story. Joseph, in this story, we're told, had that robe. And, and Jesus, we could say, well, gave up the royal robe to come down to be with us. That he gave up that, that privileged position back at home uh, by his father's side to, to come to dwell with people like us. Jesus, too, had brothers, didn't he, who, who didn't believe in him, like Joseph in this story. We see that in John's Gospel. Uh, and Jesus was betrayed not by Judah, but by Judas. For a payment of silver, he was betrayed. But unlike Joseph, Jesus was killed by his own. But here's the thing. Jesus, like the story of Joseph, none of the details, even of that, were outside of God's Hands, God's providence, God's control. And so a verse will come up on the screen now from the book of Acts where, where Luke, who's writing, could say this. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. See, Jesus Christ, he is the true and greater Joseph. God's appointed man through whom God will save many lives. See, all of the Bible, it's like a big arrow, it points towards Jesus. And we even see this here. Isn't it exciting? Just in Genesis 37. As we come towards um, a close, I, I want to ask the question, what difference does Genesis 37, this chapter, what difference does that make to, to my week, this week, to your week as well? 
I think the main thing is this, that it helps us when it feels like the car that we're driving, the, the windscreen is all steamed up. Have you, you ever had that when you're driving a car? And you're, in, you're always in a rush when that's the case, right? And you get into the car in the morning and you kind of turn the, the pathetic fan heater, at least in our car, up to max. And just sort of very little by little, it's kind of unsteaming, is that even a word? You know what I mean. Uh, but, but it often feels, you know, you're sort of driving almost at the beginning and it's still all steamed up. And, and maybe our lives feel like that sometimes, right? <laughs> we have no idea where we're going, what is going on in our lives. And we're, we're kind of trying to figure it out and we're going, what's going on? Imagine Joseph at this point as he's out on the camel's back on his way, bouncing up and down all the way down to Egypt as a slave. He must be going, God, what are you up to? What can you possibly be doing through this situation? And we might be thinking, well, at least Joseph had some dreams to grip onto. We don't even have those. But sometimes, if you're like me, we, we would love, wouldn't we, a, a lovely, neat, comfortable plan of our life that is just kind of laid out in front of us beautifully so that we can walk into that, of how our life will pan out. Yeah, we're not promised that. We're not given that. But what we are given are stories like the story of Joseph that, that demonstrate the character and the promises of God. Providentially, I want to say, Karen, in her prayers, read out this verse that we see on the screen from the book of Romans. Where we see this, where God, uh, by his spirit, inspires these words. Where it says, we know that in all things, God works for good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You might be here and thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. I've, I'm driving the car and this windscreen has, has got nothing on it and I can see exactly where I'm going with my life. Others, maybe we've, a few bits have kind of, been unblurred and we go oh yeah maybe God used that in my life for that yeah I can see that clearly now other of us maybe we're just going whoa no I, I can't drive I can't see I can't go forward because this windscreen is just so steamed up perhaps that's the diagnosis that like Jeremy Marshall just came out of the blue perhaps to others it's the the crippling mental health that kind of just grips our every day that means we can hardly get out of bed maybe others it's broken relationships troubles in a marriage visa issues that just go on and on and on GCSEs that you, you thought were going to go well and you flunk them the story of Joseph helps it helps give us a, a deeper trust that God well he is working for our good and for his glory. He's not some kind of impersonal force in the sky. No accidents happen. Nothing happens by chance. The next question in that, that Heidelberg Catechism, I've just put it there on, on your service sheet, just on that page where the sermon notes are. And again, they ask the question, like, what difference does this all make? And the answer is this. Well, through providence, we can be patient in adversity thankful in prosperity and with a view to the future that we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father. No creature shall separate us from his love for all creatures are so completely in his hands that without his will they cannot so much as move. I think Jeremy Marshall, oh, he, I think he gets that in, in those words that we read at the beginning. 
And really my prayer this weekend for all of us is that, that as we enter into this Joseph story over the next few weeks, that it will help us do these things. That it will help us to be patient in really hard times. That it will help us to be really thankful in, in good times with the, the clear windscreen. And it will give us confidence in the goodness and love of God who providentially works all things for our good and for his glory. I'll just leave a few moments of pause and then I'll lead us in prayer. Lord God, you know us and you love us. Thank you that you know our inmost being. Uh, you know what's on our plate today, what, what kind of challenges and, and issues maybe we're facing in our lives. Maybe, maybe the road ahead is clear and, and things are going well and we, we thank you for that, Lord, if that's the case with us. But Lord, I pray for those who are feeling that the, the windscreen is, is absolutely steamed up at the moment. It seems like there's no hope, no way ahead. I pray that this Joseph story will do, do a work in our lives so it's not just some abstract old story that has nothing to do with us, but it's God's living and active word that speaks into our trials and our struggles. Will you start to even do that today, Lord, we pray by your Spirit. And we thank you for Jesus, the one who, as we saw that, left his, his Father's side. He knows our troubles and knows our trials and experiences. He knew what it looked like to be rejected more than we will ever know. He would die for us and he would come to life again. And we pray that we would learn more of him more than any other prayer. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.